Unlock the full potential with your business with Leadershipity. Our proven strategies have fueled growth for countless organizations. Ready to elevate your leadership and scale your success? Book your free 15-minute consultation now. Click the link in the show notes below and let's make your business soar. Hello, welcome to the Winner's Find Away Show. I am your host, Trent Clark, CEO of Leadershipity and Aim for NIL. Love the athletic influencer marketing segment. And uh, most people know me as both an international speaker and a longtime coach in professional baseball coaching in three world series. And I'm super pumped up to welcome my guest here today, Thomas Koch, CEO of Varsity Gems, Grand Valley State University entrepreneur in residence and Cornell advisor for academic enrollment for eCornell. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. Man, you're like an entrepreneur, you're an attorney, you're an advisor. Thomas, you were a busy dude, man. Like you were, and, and I see it everywhere. Obviously, we're both in the NIL space, so I see a lot there, a lot of things going on. No moss grows on you, man. <laughs> I try not to. I think anyone entrepreneurial has to stay active and that's in our DNA. Yeah. So Thomas, are uh, born and raised in Grand Rapids, Michigan? Because I know you're there now. Lived there as a Grand Valley longtime guy there with the Entrepreneur Residence Program. And you don't live in New York as a Cornell guy, but uh, have you always been from the Grand Rapids area? I have not. I was born in Kalamazoo, actually, and so the exotic Southwest Michigan. And yeah. when I was a teenager, my parents moved to Chicago. So I've also lived in the Chicago area, right in the city, right in the heart of the city at Grand and Halstead area. So I was there wow. and came here, came back to Grand Rapids after law school. Wow. Okay. So and actually came back to Michigan during undergrad as a football player at K College. That's right. So, yeah. I, I went to high school in Grand Rapids, so uh, kind of a natural fit to come and play D3 football. I looked at a few schools, but Kalamazoo College made the most sense academically and, and was there okay. and played both football and rugby and actually was probably a better rugby player. Oh, okay. Very good. You know, it's funny. You don't see rugby on every campus. And I actually went to a Kalamazoo College, Western Michigan University rugby game where a good friend was dumped into the cinder track on the outside of that. And I don't think he remembered anything after about three days that happened prior. That was probably one of the most significant concussions I'd ever seen in my life, probably close to 32 years ago. And yeah, man, like rugby is no joke. Men's sport right there. Like, man, when you think tackle football and no pads, this is rugby. Honestly, as someone who's played both, the hits in rugby were a lot different. They weren't the same hardness, but that cinder block track, and they no longer play at that pitch. So Thank you. But that was a vicious, more than a few people have come away with some road rash slipping onto that. But that was a great park. That was a great pitch to play on in the old days. And right there along the, the river and in that kind of, cool wooded area. So you were a little bit separated from the, the world, but that was a great track to play on. Honestly, I started playing rugby when I was in high school. So wow. first playing men's club as a 15 and 16 year old. And the first match my parents ever saw was there at Kalamazoo and a guy broke his nose. And my mom, who's a, a PhD in nursing was terrified, but continued to play on even after college, pretty high level rugby. So enjoyed it. Was she, was she required to fix the nose? Like as a, she didn't. Uh, and a she volunteered to after a guy reset it. The guy just said, fix it and put me back in. 
And, you know, once you've broken a nose a few times, you know exactly what that's like. You kind of straighten it and go back. Yeah. There's not much you're going to do. But she was yeah. definitely nervous. Then she went and helped the guy after the game. But when she saw it, she did not want me to go on the, the pitch after that. <laughs> and, and then, of course, as a longtime rugby guy, you have drank out of the boot, of course, post-game. I've done a boot and, shot, as we called it. I, I avoided most please, of the Please tell the folks at home what a boot shot is so they understand. That's just where you fill basically a boot with beer and you have to drink the whole. And it's usually they pick somebody on the team who's boot you definitely don't want to be drinking out of. But I found that if you were a good member of the team and you took things well, they weren't going to mess with you too much. I had other teammates who were more, they would either fight back or they were not as friendly with the other teammates and they they struggled a bit to not have boot shots and other other worse things that we won't talk about done to them. Yeah, there we go. What most people don't know about Thomas Koch is he's actually drank out of a man's shoe that just played in a rugby game and he filled that shoe with alcohol and boot shotted that as they call it in rugby, which is a famed tradition if you're going to be involved in rugby. So every um, club has their own. Facts so. about rugby, man. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So now, you know, Grand Rapids area, you went to law school at Michigan State after football and rugby at K College. Decide like, hey, I want to go back. I want to go to law school. I want to be an attorney. Or what are your parents an attorney? Uh, neither of my parents are attorneys. In fact, they both told me not okay. to go to law school. Okay, good. And so what was it? So were you like, walk me through that. Are you like a 15 year old kid going, man, I'm going to be an attorney. I, I want to be Jerry Maguire. Or did you, did you envision like a sports agency or trying people like in the court of justice or what was your vision or, or this just happened and you never had this vision? Uh, there were two things. One was a corporate law situation that I went through that was fascinating. And, and I thought this would be cool. I'll be a corporate lawyer. And then the other was at the time, I thought like a lot of kids who go to law school, I'm going to be an environmental crusader. I was living in the city of Chicago and saw some things that environmentally weren't great. And how do we protect people? Went to law school and very quickly decided I was not going to do anything with environmental law and actually got into criminal law as a, a prosecutorial clerk in juvenile courts, both in Chicago and then here in, in Grand Rapids after a stint in Chicago and thought that I was going to be a prosecutor. And that's where my law career was going to go. Just what being a prosecutor for juveniles in Chicago is a lot like what you see on Law & Order on TV. Yeah. So nothing real sexy about it. It's uh, pretty harsh. It's pretty, I mean, it is if you like investigating crimes and being in the courtroom and seeing, you know, learning about your city. And that was my dream job. Unfortunately, I was put on the reserve list when I graduated and had to make it the tough decision. Do I want to move back to Chicago or do I want to stay in Michigan at the time? That's when my stepson had come into my life and, and my now ex-wife. So we made the decision to stay in Michigan and move to Grand Rapids for raising him and just the family life that it offered. And also just the affordability. Grand Rapids was a more affordable place than Chicago. And so, sure. yeah, came back here. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think facing an adversity there, let's, and again, you kind of glossed over it a little bit because, and, and, and maybe you didn't, but like, you know, when I think about that, like you graduated from law school in 2008. Like this is about crisis 200 level and the next year it would reach crisis 400 level. Right. right. And you're like, uh, like, Hey man, I'm graduating school. And apparently there's actually no work. And most firms are dropping 20% of their lawyers right now because they got to keep the lights on. And of course you've been, and as I have to a lot of legal law firms in Chicago, these overhead on these places are not small, right? They are unbelievable offices that, that offer resources and somehow they need to be made of marble. I don't, I don't know what that is, but like right. they're incredible. 
But when challenging times hit, like all of a sudden, like, whoa, people are a commodity that can be leveraged in, in a downturn. Marble is not. Rent is still going to need to be paid. So walk me through a little bit of that scenario as, as a young guy going, man, I'm ready to go. And no one else is ready for you. Yeah, it was definitely a trying experience. I'd also graduated undergrad in 02, which was an economic downtime. So I feel like I just had the bad luck of the draw. I did find a job relatively quickly working in family court in Grand Rapids. Not a great job, but I you know, it was a paycheck and it was doing something that was impactful within the community. So unfortunately it only lasted for a year. I was laid off due to budget cuts, then went to another company that was legally related and same thing, they downsized and I was let go. So two jobs right in a row. And if you look at the economic data on that, it's not good. You get laid off once, your chance, your earnings are cut. If you get laid off twice, it's the same thing, right? There's not a great outcome there. And so that was really what led me to being more entrepreneurial and trying to find alternatives to that career path and finding a way to use my legal knowledge on a daily basis, but not necessarily be a lawyer per se, where I'm every day using it. And I want to work for the state of Michigan as a securities review attorney, which gave me a ton of practical experience. I mean, that that's a great role to be in. There you go. And ultimately ended up working for the state of Michigan. Yeah. Right. I was working with the state and spent a year there before a startup saw the value in me and said, hey, we need a guy like you. Before I went to law school, I'd been in the business development and sales world. And they said, having the combination of those two, the professional skills you have, and the fact that you've done that kind of work, if you're willing to pursue it, come back in. And so I was able to go to a company called Verify Valid. The CEO, Paul Doyle, hired me. And I was one of the very early stage employees of a growing startup here in Grand Rapids in the financial technology space. And it was phenomenal because it really exposed me to a lot of things and, and showed me entrepreneurship, the good and the bad. And even Paul will joke now that sometimes he regrets introducing me to entrepreneurship, but it, it, it's helped me. And that it was great to go to a startup like that, that was on its own journey to being acquired and, and a fast growing startup. You know, it's funny, man. You think like 2010, 2012, I never heard the term FinTech, right? Financial yeah. technology. Then all of a sudden you're realizing I sold one of my companies, I used to own 1-800-GOT-JUNK and, and I owned all the Phoenix franchises. And I sold to quote unquote, a FinTech person in like 2006, I think. And you know, he had a software that 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 triggered a, an ATM transaction between a debit card and a bank. And he had this little thing and he had a fractional amount of sense there that, that kind of went into every transaction that his software was awarded and everything. And, you know, then he had, you know, 3 million transactions a day, <laughs> you know, and it was like, yeah. holy cow, like, wait a minute, it's, man. It's like, amazing. You know, yeah. What goes into our financial markets and the amount of technology that's been around for a long time. FinTech existed, you know, since we've had technology, but a matter of like now it's just growing at scale and what it can do is we harness the power of the internet and more people are using mobile technologies. So at that time, you're right. It was just at that point becoming a buzzword kind of trend. There were big conferences happening and shows. And it was really, it's still one of the areas that I look at a lot is financial technology. And it's fascinating to see, like back then we were in the payment space and payments alone, like how people pay other people and track payments and get paid. That was a huge market. And now it's become more about trading tech and online banking and other things like that. And it's, it's really cool to see. It is revolutionizing things, but it's come with its own host of things around security and data privacy and all those things as well. And and fascinating. It, it's an industry that won't go away as long as the internet is still up and running. Well, and it's and let's 
put your visionary hat on, right? We're gonna we're gonna put your futurist hat on because you know this whole thing with like Venmo that's changed like how we do transactions each other. We're we're like little bankers now. Like, hey, I don't need to wire a big check and pay twenty dollar wire fee. Like, I can do something here on a smaller scale, right? And then of course Bitcoin now, where you have a, an electronic currency, and man, it's there's there's a lot going on. So futurist Thomas Koch in the fintech, what do you see? Boy, I mean, there's so many ways you could go with that. I, I try to, I think we'll get better and better at making payments between peer-to-peer payments, especially. Venmo is certainly not the first. It's just it got market share really quick. Quickly, there were yeah. several before them that were, were also big. I think the other big thing that we'll see change is the way people invest money is continuing to evolve and the way people get involved fractional shares and things like that as people realize how to do that we've already seen things like insure tech and real estate tech that have changed those markets but really i don't know that digital currencies will ever fully take over but the reality is a lot of transactions exist in a digital space right now and no actual it's not like someone's moving the paper money around from bank to bank so as we get more and more used to that i think you'll see digital payments just become ubiquitous if they're not already so I think there's yeah. still some element though. I still pay for some things in cash. I still have cash around and it's yeah. that'll probably go away on some level. The other big thing for the United States is we're slow to adopt some, some things. So there's a, an element that we will actually catch up to some other parts of the world and you know get into those those things that our other countries are doing. So it's amazing to it, me that, yeah. It's funny that you say you use cash. I, I used cash like last week to buy something and it wasn't major, but it was under a hundred dollars, but not yep. but more than, you know, 50, right? And man, I'm telling you, it was like to get change from this person was like, man, you, you'd have thought I just asked for a, you know, a graduate level dissertation. I was like, man, hey, wait a minute. You, you want me to give you a number? Like where we're at? Yeah. Like it was like a two minute, three minute delay. And I just thought like, wow. Like, you know, we just don't do it very often. And I appreciate that. Yep. Like, it's, it's not something we're even training up people to make change. Right. So yep. it's a funny world. How it's we're no longer part of the people. job. Yeah. yeah. And and no, to I'm some extent, cash registers will also tell tell you everything, you know. Yeah. The POSs have all changed. Another probably fintech, you know, product right there. Who And, and of course, the trading world, right? The owners of the Chicago Cubs, they owned the trading firm, right? Yeah. Yeah, and, that's the and, uh, their names. Do Sorry. they own Ameritrade? I I could, I'm not sure. Yeah, TD Ameritrade, I think, was who they were. But what's the family's name? Sorry, it, when yeah. I lived in Chicago, I was John, more of a White totally. Sox fan. Oh, yeah, really? Okay. But, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Southsider. Okay. Truth be told, I know you're a big baseball guy. Not a huge baseball fan. So, okay. yeah. We don't need to talk baseball. That's for sure. But it never was the sport that took my attention. So, yeah, you need to hit somebody. I saw, like, you know, football and rugby. There's got to be some contact there. Right. Yeah. T- terrible circumstances on my part. But yeah, I, I mean, uh, that baseball to me is really fun to go to with my dad. It's really fun to go to with my kids and spend time at a game. I will yeah. tell you that I'm a much bigger fan of minor league baseball and the minor league baseball yeah. experience than I am of the even the major league experience. But we went to sure. Cubs games all the time. My dad had season tickets for the Cubs. So I was in Wrigley Field a lot. I've been to yeah. I love Comerica. Honestly, it's a, they do a great yeah. job in Detroit. But, Detroit Tigers, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I just well, and you're, and you're, you're home of the, the West Michigan Whitecaps there in Grand Rapids. Yep. And, you know, they were a stunning success to back yep. in the day of a newly minted franchise 
that literally added, I think, a thousand seats a year to their facility and and sold out like their whatever, 71 dates a year. I think there's 142 games in the minors and, you know, 71 dates in kind of South or Central West Michigan is not easy when, you know, April days are pretty cold and they uh, always put people. Yeah, yeah, they put people and in, they, they tend to do well if they don't sell out the game necessarily. It is it's amazing to see the fans that continue to turn up to see future Tigers players, right? Because we're the Tigers team, but also what they've done is create food yeah. experiences at that stadium. And what I love about it, I have I've got some projects on the side where I'm working on minor league sports. It's really been a good study in like how to run a minor minor league franchise about make the experience really good for families yeah. and they'll want to come back. And the families, it's the price is right. The fact that you can take your kids to the game and it's safe and there's a lot of activities and there's always something to do. So your kids are entertained. And, you know, the only major league park I've really been to that's nailed it. I think Comerica does a good job. Cincinnati, Great American Ballpark, nails it. That whole like family atmosphere. I got yeah. a chance to go to a game there with my youngest son to watch the Reds. And the Red, it was not a good baseball game. It was Reds versus <laughs> I think the Oakland A's and neither team was pretty, was very good at the time. You had some good personalities, you know, Joey Voto and some of those guys. But what was really cool about it was Mr. Red's walking around. There's a big playground. There was a lot of cool stuff to do. So, yeah, really, really cool. Very interesting entrepreneurial dynamic of baseball because, you know, Old Riverfront was, man, sterile and host of the Big Red Machine. But, man, the way they've done all the stadiums down on the river in Cincinnati, the Great American Ballpark is incredible. It's yep. right next to the football stadium. And, yep. you know, it, and then the whole area plays host to families like, hey, we want you here. We want it safe and, and it's activity. You can feel the energy on game days. It's amazing. So I love that shout out for the Cincinnati Reds. And, and I think the entrepreneurial venture that probably most people don't get about minor league baseball is that minor league baseball is often affiliate baseball if you're in pro ball. Yeah. So like, as you mentioned, the White Michigan, West Michigan Whitecaps white are an affiliate of the Detroit Tigers. Well, the, the Whitecaps owner doesn't have to pay for personnel. Like they're already Tigers. So he doesn't have to pay for players. He's got to pay for the stadium, which is often on a city bond or something like that. So you may not own the stadium. So the whole program is you put butts in seats. You make crazy money, right? And so, man, I remember going in when I was with the Angels. I was going to Detroit. We'd played Detroit. And then I went over to West Michigan to watch a prospect that was playing for our minor league affiliate in Cedar Rapids with the Colonels. And, and they yeah, were the in West Michigan to play. And I had gone over to see a couple kids that were really a big part of the future of the Angels with uh, Francisco Rodriguez, K-Rod, and a couple of players. And they were giving a car lease away that night. I'm like going, hey, man, who does this? Like, there's 8,000 people, and you got a chance to win a car for a year. Like, I'm like, man, they they had this dialed in with the local. And I'm like going, the stands were full. It's a beautiful day in June. And I'm like, man, they got something figured out here. Like this, as an entrepreneur and a business owner, I was so excited. I was like, this is awesome. Like these guys have got it dialed in. Yep. Yeah, no. And and I I, I love that element of any minor league sport, hockey, uh, I've even been to arena football of various kinds in, in Oaks. Sure. And it's just fascinating to me because I've been to a lot of, you know, major league, you know, NBA, NHL, certainly baseball. I've only been to one NFL game, which was, it was just so expensive, but it's a different type of investment, right? Because there's such yeah. a lower 
you know, just the the inventory is lower, right? So it's a different kind of thing. Yeah. But I used to enjoy going to hockey games in Chicago. I'm a Pistons and Red Wings fan, but I would still go to Bulls and Blackhawks games when we lived here because we weren't incredibly far from the stadium and it was easy to get to and, and they were enjoyable. But I do think the element of, especially in Chicago, a city like Chicago, baseball in the summer, a day game, it's hard to beat that environment, right? Yeah. And what's cool about minor league baseball is it's a mix of those two, but also you're seeing these young guys, some of whom will never make it, some of whom have that shot. And when the Whitecaps started, I believe they were the Oakland A's affiliate, and then they switched over to the Tigers. Yeah. And that really, right. really made a big change because it brought in a whole new element, you know, getting the fans to to engage, kind of like the Griffins being the Red Wings team here in Grand Rapids, where you know, hey, these yeah. guys might be on the Red Wings in a couple of months. So that's a great opportunity. But it's also one of the reasons why I like college sports is the ability to know you might be watching a kid who's getting an opportunity out of school and he'll then go on to go pro and, and do other things. But yeah. Yeah. It's- I, I love like talk about like that minor league hockey. I love watching the Griffins in Grand Rapids and I love watching college hockey. I mean, those kids, yeah. you know, they're, they're playing for something, man. Like it's not like their job. They are playing for that next level and the, and the next opportunity. So they go through the wall, man. I mean, it, it is a intense level and that's what i think i love about amateur sports is there's always that next level that that the kids are gunning for and so you they leave everything out on the field right and and so i love that aspect of it no i want to take you back for a second thomas because when you're 16 years old running around chicago high school kid like i mean are you thinking this is what i'm gonna do the rest of my life i'm gonna spend around sports and advising and entrepreneurs well I mean, yeah, obviously liked law and you wanted to go to law school, but like, what, what did you envision at that time as a young man? I always knew I'd be entrepreneurial. There was no doubt about that. It was, and I, at the time, I was actually still in Grand Rapids as a teenager. I had a great set of teachers that really inspired us to pursue DECA and things like that. And then when I was in college, I was able to work at the Small Business Development Center and continue that exposure to small business and startups. I really, though, thought I would always be in some kind of entrepreneurial uh, front. So that was, you know, my pursuits were always going towards that mindset. And it's booked into my family DNA as well. My mom's, she grew up on a dairy farm, which is very much a family business and very much an entrepreneurial endeavor. Not necessarily the one that everyone wants to go into as my uncles later did not go into, but they kept the farm. And then my dad had been an entrepreneur as had my grandpa on that side. So I think, you know, you've got these opportunities to, you know, experience that stuff and it's in your DNA. And it's really, to me, we, we some Paul Doyle, my first, the first CEO I worked for would say entrepreneurship is apple pie and motherhood. It's about the most American thing you can do because really it's important to have that you know opportunity to be part of the economy in a unique way that other people really benefit from you're creating jobs you're creating economic prosperity and especially if you do it in a way that benefits your local area it's a real difference maker and that always appealed to me on a huge level that was a very high on my my desires was to, to be able to do something where I could give back to my community, but also in a way that was financially successful. So that was what appealed to me about entrepreneurship. Yeah, no, I think it's, yeah, it's a, it's a huge part of, it's been a huge part of my life. And I think for those very reasons, right? And, you know, when I when I think about getting into it, now you're working with these young entrepreneurs, right? And they're startup mode. And we talk about, you know, as a member of the entrepreneur organization, there's a requirement that members have a million dollars in revenue or more in their business annually. So it's a size of a company, right? Which is to me, not very big. That's, you know, we're not the dial corp. We're not Amway, you know, who's doing billions of dollars, but 
only 3.4% of all businesses make a million dollars of revenue top line. So small business is America. And talk to me a little bit about working with these kids about their entrepreneurial ventures and walking into those trials of entrepreneurship because man there's plenty there there's plenty of hurdles right yeah and i think the big thing to remember working with students is most of them will never actually become a business they you know most of these will be projects that are short term so you're really there to get them to yes you'll you'll come across some that are very much should be a business and pursue it but you also have students who will take a job and they're given fields so maybe they have a great idea but they have a great job opportunity as well your goal is to have them learn as much from the experience as possible and also when they go through the adversity, sometimes it's the first taste of adversity a young person has had. When they've run into, we don't use the term problem, we say challenge. You've run into a challenge, generally challenges have a way to, around it or to you know work on things. And so I think that's the big thing to, to bear in mind. And every single one of the students will approach things differently. You have the eternal optimist, you have the eternal pessimist, you have this whole variety of people in between. So how do you make sure that you're always working with that person to make sure that they're learning something and getting the, the right message? And we use a lot of times the pivot or prosper method, which is actually a three-pronged method. Pivot, like your idea wasn't that great, but you can change it and make it a go. Prosper is you came in with a great idea, just keep going. The other one is say, man, I got in there, did market research and realized this was a terrible idea and we shouldn't be a business. And one of the things I think too often we don't, we don't in the United States ask, should we do something? We ask, can we do something? Sometimes in yeah. business, you really have to ask, should we do this? Is there a market? Not, can we yeah. create this app that does this thing? If nobody wants it, who cares if we create it? And yeah. I think that's a really interesting question and getting students, especially to learn how to do market research and test their hypotheses, because oftentimes they haven't gone through that experience. And it's really science, it's not, it's unscientific, but it can be scientific, gathering information and feedback and what you do with that feedback. But it's also a great way to learn how to do marketing, some basic financial skills, all these things that will make you a great employee down the road or the second and third time. Most people don't succeed on their first entrepreneurial endeavor. They It's the second or third that they succeed on. And actually, currently in the US, I think people in their 30s to 40s are the most successful entrepreneurs when they look at a cohort. So we think of it as a young person's game and it's not always a young person's game. Yeah, well, I love, I think, I think I'm gonna add to your piece like, you know, pivot, prosper, or pitfall. Like, hey, maybe this isn't something you should be and maybe you're <laughs> gonna go into the pitfall and never get out. And we always use like four key, I, I learned this from one of my mentors, Don Hanna, passed away last year, great mentor of mine. And Don was like, he always had four questions like, hey, is there a need for whatever this product service is? Is it, is it being filled, right? And then is there money in it? And that's important. Are people willing to put money in? And then lastly, can you get paid for doing it? Like, you know, right. and, and had to answer yes to all four of those questions. And if you didn't, probably pitfall. You're probably going to spin your wheels in a bunch of area and never probably get out of that thing because it's got an inherent issue. And, and I, I hear people say stuff all the time like, oh, that's a great idea. Oh, would you buy one? Well, no, I wouldn't pay for that. <laughs> well, you know, like if no one's going to pay for it, then it's not a great idea, right? It's, it's, I don't know if there's a business there. Or, um, or what would you pay? And is that enough to pay a salary to somebody, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I, think, I think honestly, that's a something to really think about in the NIL market right now because that's, you know, how you and I connected to talk about name, image, and likeness. So many companies, because it was the hot, new thing jumped into it. And we're already seeing companies yeah. consolidate, go away sure. and do other things. And I think that's the question is, is there really a market for certain things that we yeah. think is, is readily available and, you know, always set up and it's yeah. not that case. Right. And 
I have been exposed to in my life a lot of those situations. And what's really scary with NIL, for instance, is that myth gets spread so fast. And, you know, we all know that misinformation travels a lot faster than good information because the good information yeah. takes time to learn and, and to develop. And I think that for me is the most interesting thing about what we're watching right now in the sports entrepreneurship world is, are we really accomplishing what we set out to accomplish with some of these things and how sustainable are they? And we don't know the landscape, right? So it's a good example of a landscape that's shifting. And one of the risks that you have going into this business is what if the NCAA goes away? What if the NCAA wholesale changes the rules? What if half the NCAA goes away? What does that mean for a D3 athlete versus a D1 athlete? And there are all these unknown structural questions. And I can't, for the life of me, figure out all of the answers. And when I can't figure it out and I've been hanging around a long time, I'm more refreshed to hear people saying, I don't know all the answers. Here's what I think is going to go. Then the people who tell me they've got the answer set and this is what you need to yeah. do. And unfortunately, right now, I come across a lot more of those people who are afraid to not say there is no such thing as an expert in this field. It's too new and we need to you know, go at this with a pause. The other thing I think is one of the things you mentioned as I work with young entrepreneurs, most athletes now are viewing themselves as entrepreneurs. And it's mm -hmm. a really interesting time to see what does that actually mean and how many of them want to spend the time and go through the difficult parts of being an entrepreneur when it comes to their name, image, and likeness versus just being a student or just being an athlete or being a student athlete in the true measure of the way things go. And now it's trickling down to high school. So, you know, and youth sports, you know, where does it end and what does that mean long term? Yeah, it's, it's a big question, man. There's, there are so many unanswered questions in that space. It's absolutely challenging. Definitely want to think about that. You know, when I think about the NIL world, and I want to wrap this up, Thomas, I know you got to go. So when I think about the NIL world, you've made a great point about misinformation. And I, and I think like, it's like the Rose Bowl parade that's being choked up by weeds, right? Like, because like yeah. there are a lot of weeds and like, you'd love to see a rose bloom, except the misinformation becomes this choking out of the truth. And there's a lot of great things in NIL and there's 570,000 athletes. And we only hear about the 8,000 that are making these crazy contracts, but hey, there's a whole bunch of other athletes that have all sorts of opportunities and things that are there, but there's got to be systems and there's got to be education and knowledge. And I think that's going to be challenging. I think you're exactly right that I think there's going to be a lot of businesses that get, they're going to find that there's a need. They're going to fill that need. And then a swipe of the pen is going to change it. And like, oh, you can no longer do that anymore. Like, Yep. Wait a minute. I just built my whole structure on that. And now you just changed the game. So that's going to be a challenging land, entrepreneurial landscape, right? Yeah. And, and I do, I do think that, you know, one of the big things, I have a lot of friends who are doing the education and working in that space. And I, I'm trying to, it's amazing to me how many people are still struggling with that. And it comes up in almost every conversation I have with athletes, with administrators, with people in those companies, and not just people providing that service. And without the proper information, student athletes feel lost. And so sometimes they won't pursue opportunities if they don't know the full information, just like anybody. And I yeah. think one of the disservices early on was that school couldn't be more involved in the process when they were really the proper vehicle and conduit for some of these things. And I do think there's a, that change is coming, especially for smaller schools, but we'll, we'll have to see. And one of the things I do do want to mention that I, I've been thinking a lot about this because having a mom that's a PhD in nursing and my sister's a nurse manager. And of course they're the rote 
sort of argument they make is we should pay nurses more. Look at how much money athletes make. And I do think there's an element or a myth that every athlete's going to become wealthy off of this. Money is limited. It's a resource. And yeah. there is a point in time when people will not spend on certain things. And I think we have to bear in mind that sports can't just be about money. It has to be about the competition itself and being skillful at your sport and what it can mean otherwise. And when we lose context of why college sports exist, it's not there for kids to make money. It's there to be part of the academic landscape and it's there for them to be student athletes and scholar athletes unfortunately what we've seen at the big time level is that it's become a business not necessarily unfortunately that's a mischaracterization but it's a big business for michigan michigan state ohio state the sec schools it's not a big business for the division three schools and the naia schools and i don't yeah. know how many people really grasp that and understand that most of these athletes are being recruited there because the school wants them academically it's a great recruitment tool. It keeps alumni around. But at some point in time, the alumni are going to say, wait, if I'm giving money to a collective and to the making donations and I got to buy products and do all this other stuff, how much can I give? Like, I don't want to just be viewed as a millionaire with an open wallet to the school. I want to be helping the kids out in the right way. And, and I think we haven't reached that point yet, but I think some donors are already starting to say, okay, what do we get out of this? Big thing to watch will be the University of Tennessee lawsuit and the Florida State lawsuits against the NCAA. Other big thing to watch watches the news out of Dartmouth where the players certified as a class and are now being declared employees and could potentially uni uh, unionize. And that will be huge because you have an Ivy League school where they're not on scholarship. Most of them haven't pursued NIL. There hasn't been a ton of NIL in the Ivy Leagues. Yeah. And you're certainly at Dartmouth and Harvard and those schools getting a phenomenal education that sets you up for life. What does this really mean in that context? And Northwestern tried it before versus if suddenly the athletes at Cornerstone where you and I just spoke recently, Cornerstone University, if they're declared employees, well, that just changes the whole game for Cornerstone yeah. and what they offer as an NIA school who's about character, but you're going there for being a, experience of being a Christian athlete and going to a school of, of like-minded Christian students or Kalamazoo where I went, which is very secular as a school, but you were there for the academics, great pre-med programs, I love uh -huh. produce a lot of students that go on to the Peace Corps and go on to law school and business school. You didn't go to Kalamazoo to turn pro or make money. There no one that never entered anyone's mind. But now in the recruiting process, that's something a recruit has to think about, right? And yeah. Kalamazoo might not be the proper place to make NIL money. What's the value of that versus not getting paid at a school? And you know, could Kalamazoo become an NIL bell cow? We don't know. So yeah. Even Kalamazoo, you know, the athletics is a business. How many of the students at Kalamazoo were also involved in sport? Because it's like over 40%, right? Yeah, it's and at most D three schools, you're going to find that's the case. It's half the students. Yeah, but we're yeah. just losing money on the sports. It's not like you know. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. It's uh, a lost leader. That's how we get the most students. events and not pay. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think I ever yeah. paid for a baseball game when I was there. But you know, sure. you. you or a soccer game, or, you know, we go see our, our teammates. But again, they're yeah. using a, the business end of that as the school saying, if we get 70 guys in the football team and 30 kids on the baseball team, we've recruited a bunch of student athletes who generally fit our academic profile. They're coming here to play a sport and they may not have selected this school if it wasn't for that opportunity. Because we had kids right. that were D1 recruits, D2 recruits, you name it, but chose to come for the academics. And they might have said, hey, I'm not going to K, it's too expensive, but they come and they actually research financial aid packages and so forth. And the more students you get like me who are, you know, we're not as financial aid conscious because 
our parents had the money to support us, we might pay for a couple other kids to get a, a bigger scholarship. And then we're forever in love with our school. We, we, you know, I still wear my K college clothes everywhere, still talk to my teammates. Yeah. And then we become donors as we become adults. And you, it is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, but we also got a great education while we were there and loved the school for the education and what it offered. And that's probably true of Hope and Calvin and all the schools in the MIAA and the D3s across the country. That's awesome. Thomas Koch, man, I got to let you go. I know you got a hard schedule to keep. So, Thomas, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. Winners Find a Way show every Friday, 1230 p.m. Eastern, 930 a.m. Pacific on YouTube, Leadership the YouTube channel, LinkedIn Live, Facebook Live. Check us out and all the podcasts are on any of your major podcast networks. For Thomas Koch, entrepreneur and resident at Grand Valley State, Cornell, E. Cornell University, admissions. Say that title. Enrollment advisor. Yep. Yeah. Enrollment, enrollment advisor. Thank you. Enrollment yeah. advisor and CEO of RC Gems. Thank you so much, Thomas, for joining us, man. Always good to see you, my brother. And uh, hopefully we'll see you down the road soon. All right. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. All right. For everybody else, when you find a way. Organizations come to me all the time with challenges of execution and communication with their teams. We help build a system through Bloom Growth and software that gives them simplification and prioritization. I teach, facilitate, and coach these organizations to literally double their value. If you're interested in gaining your individual and organizational growth, please email me at trent at leadershipity.com or click the link below and book a 15-minute call on my Calendly.